and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. If you grew up in Britain, one of your earliest memories is probably of sand, upending a little bucket as you try to make a castle, or dipping a net in a rock pool, or feeling a bit sick after too much candy floss, or just shivering as you ran out of the sea. We've got a deep affection for the seaside, and in old age, lots of us return to it. But many British seaside towns are not great places to actually live. The prettiest ones have fallen victim to the curse of Airbnb, leaving them unaffordable and empty most of the year. Many others fell out of fashion when cheap flights took off and have struggled to recover. What are English seaside towns really like now? What's it like to live there? Joining me to talk about her new book on the seaside is Madeline Bunting. Welcome to the bunker, Madeline. Hello, thank you. Your book is called The Seaside, England's Love Affair. But is it a love affair? Don't we have a bit of an abusive relationship with seaside towns as we trip along to them for a sunny day and then we ignore them in the winter? Well, I love the title, getting that concept right up there at the beginning, that sort of deep affection. But, you know, as we know, love affairs can can take many different forms. And, you know, there can be abusive elements that start in a love affair that that then become abusive or difficult or, or neglectful. But I felt it was really important to get up front that, that sort of passion that has been a characteristic, particularly of England, over the course of, say, roughly 1800 to 1980. That's the sort of the, the, the period of the love affair, that 180 years, it genuinely has been a love affair. And then in many ways, I would say now, there's still huge reserves of affection everywhere I went, no matter how tricky the town was and you know how many challenges it faced, it was really striking, the affection of many of the residents and many of the visitors. And you hint sometimes that the people who move to seaside towns are actually sometimes trying to escape something. What are they trying to escape? Well, there's a very specific issue, which starts in housing, really, that if you're, if you're talking about this sort of what are, what are people escaping from, there's a specific demographic that are being forced out of major urban cities like London or Manchester or Bristol because of the rising of property prices. They can't find anywhere to live. So what are their options? Well, they get on the train and they end up in Blackpool where you can get a cheap bedsit on the day that you arrive, plentiful, cheap accommodation from buy-to-let landlords who have bought the former hotels up and turned them into bedsits. So many of those people, and in Blackpool, it's about 5,000 people arrive in the city every year who are on housing benefits. So there are many of them have got a history of um, substance abuse, either alcoholism or drugs. Some of them have come out of prison. Some are fleeing domestic violence. They've got troubled lives. And perhaps it's a childhood memory. They remember going to the beach, but they think this is the place that I can start again. And that's true of Clacton, for example, from London. You get Londoners moving out to the area of Clacton, known as Jaywick, which is the poorest uh, area of the whole country. And really, the, the tragedy is that for the last 20 years, the poorest neighbourhoods in, in the UK have consistently been topped by Jaywick, and then Blackpool features prominently in the top 10. Uh, so it's a kind of stubborn, persistent poverty, which is made up of a continuing influx of people, of new arrivals. And do you think some of these people do find what they're looking for? Well, yeah. Actually, I mean, you know, sometimes in the in the in the story, people say, well, they bring all their problems with them, and then you get county lines, and you get crack dens, and 
you know, it's, it's all terrible, terrible. But actually, when you talk to people, there's also another story, which is, okay, things may be hard because there aren't jobs and there aren't there often isn't enough support to help people with you know substance abuse for example but they enjoy the beach and they enjoy the peace and the quiet and they enjoy aspects of the environment i mean there's some indication that the sort of well-being is actually higher on the coastline despite all the social problems around the fact that they are much poorer than the rest of the country and low pay and often in poorer health there's a real pattern of ill health around our coastal fringe. And one of the reasons for that ill health is because it is somewhere that people retire to in Britain, seaside town. It's a tradition almost to do so. Does that create its own problems? It does indeed. And that's particularly acute in some parts of the coastline. So, you know, the two resorts I'd pick out on that one are Skegness on the Lincolnshire coast and the resorts next to Skegness, Chapel St. Leonard's, Mablethorpe, and then in another part of the country, West Somerset, uh, Minehead. So Minehead is one of the oldest towns in the country. I think recently it was it was the oldest. Your population uh, is is on average much uh, older than 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 the rest, and that's partly people retiring to these towns. It's also about youngsters moving away because they just don't have the opportunities. It's hard, you know, if you're in Skegness, it's hard to get to decent further education. And so there's a kind of declining ratio of young working age people to the elderly. And there are a lot of quite successful English seaside towns, aren't there? I mean, there are places that people really spend a lot of money going to. It's very hard to find a nice place to stay in them in the summer. Places like Alderborough in Suffolk or Deal or Whitby. What's the secret of their success, if you like? Well, what's made them more attractive? Well, you've picked three really, really good examples. All three are sort of his- exceptional, sort of historic, picturesque towns. And they have a head start. You know, they look beautiful. And there's a really interesting shift in the last 40 years in tastes of what kind of environment people want at the seaside. In one survey recently, the top coastal place to visit was Bamborough, Northumberland. Well, there's, you know, it's a very small village and it's beautiful windswept beaches and dunes, but it's very kind of quiet. You know, it's not Blackpool. Um, it doesn't have that range of attractions. Runswick Bay, which is where in, on the North Yorkshire coast, which is where I went to the seaside as a child, is regarded as the best beach in Britain, according to the Sunday Times. Controversial. I suspect lots of Scots and Welsh would disagree with that. But it's a very, very pretty little bay, tiny village. And so what we what we want has changed at the seaside and those kinds of days of, of, you know, crowds on the promenade and and kind of packed beaches. It only fits a few towns. Brighton, I think, still can sort of successfully model that. Bournemouth, as we know, during Covid was it was absolutely crammed. But by and large, people look for the for the picturesque and, you know, the rise of the southwest. You know, more and more people have got, you know, if they want to go to the seaside, they go down to Cornwall and Devon. During the pandemic, it was often illegal or difficult to go on holiday abroad. And you did quite a lot of the research for this book during COVID, didn't you? What what kind of impact did it have? As you mentioned, lots of people rushed to places like Bournemouth in particular. But did it have a bit of a reviving effect on the seaside generally? 
Well, it's com- complex because in some ways they, they got hit very, very badly in the lockdown of 2020. You know, going to Margate in the middle of lockdown was, was the most bizarre experience because there was obviously nobody there and it was all shut up. So the summer season of 2020 didn't happen until late. You know, these are, these are towns that rely on their summer economy as a kind of injection of, of money that will, you know, keep them going for the rest of the year. And it didn't kind of begin to kind of kick in. I can't remember now where, when it was that Boris Johnson said, okay, you can go to the beach. There was a sort of, you know, speech where he, he finally kind of eased that part of the lockdown rules. And I talked to a councillor in South End who said, you know, it was an absolute nightmare. We were listening to his speech, praying that he wouldn't say that because we knew we would then have to get all the kind of social, um, social distancing toilets into place. And, you know, we had 48 hours to do it. So it, it was a real feast and famine. You know, no, you can't go. The police, the places were empty. They, their kind of, their blood supply was cut off. And then, yes, you can go. And the crowds just poured in and local authorities, you know, as you know, in Christchurch, Bournemouth, they declared a state of emergency because there were cars parked everywhere, people camping on the beach. It was mayhem. Longer term, what is the impact of COVID is another set of issues, I think, because I think the dramatic, you know, as somebody who's written a book about work and how we work, you know, many years ago, you know, I marvel at what's happened over the last few years, which is a an extraordinary transformation in working patterns so that it is no longer considered essential to turn up to the office every day from nine to, to five. The idea of being able to do mixed working or work entirely from home uh, has arrived in the space of a couple of years. And that could, could bode well for seaside resorts because if you are crammed in a tiny flat in central London longing for fresh air, while moving down to the Kent coast would dramatically improve your quality of life, as many, many down from Londoners, as they're known in Kent, would would affirm. It's a fantastic place to bring up kids, etc. But it depends on two things, and that is decent public transport connections and good digital connectivity. You know, we could really redistribute population to coastlines. They're lovely, lovely places to live in many, many circumstances. But they've got to have good, reliable trains so that people can get back to these sort of urban centres when they need to. And they've got to have good digital connectivity. And those two issues, you know, that's part of a much broader debate about infrastructure in, in the UK, but they, you know, are not in place. So we remain very concentrated in terms of investment in public infrastructure. And that really disadvantages coastal areas. Well, on that subject, I have a theory that the shift of party conferences from Blackpool and Brighton and Bournemouth, which I remember doing in the uh, noughties, I suppose, to Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool, has actually made it easier for MPs to ignore them and to not think about these places, in particular Blackpool, which was always... I suppose the least attractive of the destinations that you would go to in that period because the hotels were usually very bad, it has to be said. Do you, th- do you think there's anything in that? I would agree with you. You know, I remember going to, to political conferences in those seaside towns and, you know, it was a way of reminding the political establishment that the world didn't revolve around, you know, Camden and Islington. It was, you know, very helpful. And I think Blackpool was particularly helpful. I mean, all that London contingent climbing onto the trains were like, oh, groaning at the four-hour train ride up to Blackpool. 
But I, I think it helped Labour, for example, to, and the Conservatives, actually, because seaside towns have got quite an int- interesting, varied political profile. It, it helped them connect to a very important part of their constituency. And so I, I would agree with you that it was good to have the party conferences in those towns. And the reason why, you know, they didn't, I mean, Blackpool just couldn't provide good enough facilities. And, you know, it's, it's rather sort of mournful, the winter garden, where, you know, there were great history of great speeches, you know, Churchill, Thatcher, you know, there were great, great political moments in Blackpool. And now, you know, it's under renovation and, you know, it just wasn't safe enough to, to actually continue to have the conferences there. And that was, you know, reach a decision reached, but I think it's about 20 years ago. Yeah, I remember going on a Ryanair flight up to Blackpool for a party conference and then that route was taken away. You write a lot about Brighton, which is somewhere I know reasonably well because my uh, father retired down there. Why do you think Brighton is such a fascinating place? Oh, gosh, that's such a... You know, it's it's part of the history. Um, You know, if you think of the sort of... You know, this book is, is... a lot of social history and Brighton has been a sort of central part of the story of the English seaside resort. You know, its proximity to London meant that there was, you know, investment arrived. John Nash built those magnificent Regency terraces, the extraordinary construction of the Royal Pavilion, the Brighton Pavilion, which is just the most either monstrous or or intoxicating piece of architecture, depending on your your view. And some would say, you know, an appalling appalling piece of appropriation mixing up every kind of genre of architecture from around the world but it, it you know the seaside has always been about fantasy in many many respects about feeding the appetite for fantasy indulging in it you know seasides are about indulging and excess exuberance abundance and brighton in so many stages of the evolution of seaside resorts was making it up. You know, they were the first place to have a pier. And so they produced two, built two wonderful piers. Various earlier piers fell into the sea. I mean, I think it's a very beautiful city. And there's something about that heady mix of not being at the centre, but being being within reach of the centre, both of creative and cultural and political economic power, as in London, that creates, I think, an incredible creativity. So I was in Brighton in its rather sort of dog days in the early 80s. I lived there for three years. And the city, you know, it's now a city, the town in those days was reinventing itself. And it was doing it with with such a kind of experimental kind of approach. You know, let's just try this. Let's just try that. See what happens. And it was febrile. You could feel it all. And so it was a very exciting time in Brighton's history to, to live there, I think, because, you know, it matched onto what I was wanting to do as a teenager, which was to kind of experiment. And the presence of a lesbian, gay, LGBTQ community in Camptown and parts of Brighton very early. I mean, it's, you know, it was about modelling a kind of tolerance, a kind of diversity, a kind of warmth. I always felt a very kind of warm and friendly place. I felt that there was a warmth to Brighton. So Brighton has been many things to many people. And, you know, that's part of its sort of enduring fascination. It does always feel like the kind of place where you can get away with things that would not be possible elsewhere, whether it's crime or sex or, you know, it, 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 it kind of, it, those normal rules are suspended, I think, when you get off the train in Brighton. Yeah, Keith, Keith Waterhouse had a great quote, which is that Brighton always looks like it's helping the police with their inquiries or something. <laughs> You know, some, some, some phrase like that, that. There's always a sort of sense of the illegal, the illicit kind of lurking around every corner. <laughs> so we all have a kind of favourite, I think, and a least favourite seaside town. And that 
often dates back to our childhood. So what what are yours? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I have a lot of affection for Scarborough, which partly dates from my childhood. But actually, you know, the, the childhood memories are not of the architecture or anything. You know, they're just of the sand and the beach and the donkeys. And so it's not really a childhood memory so much as I do think it's a stunning position. You know, it's it, it, it sort of perched along a series of cliffs with headlands. And uh, it's very, very dramatic position. So, you know, I definitely put Scarborough up there. You know, I do think that the Kent, the Thanet resorts, Margate, Ramsgate, you know, they have a history which is as fascinating as Brighton. And there's something very, very intriguing about being, I mean, that eastern toe of Kent was an island up until, you know, the late Middle Ages. And it's something about being an island off an island, which creates a very pronounced kind of identity um a sense of of sort of you know it it, it is there's a sort of it's, it's a curious kind of atmosphere i think i've always been intrigued by that kind of thing but you know i could carry on describing the the, the bits that i loved about almost all the resorts i went to you know the, the research for this book was a lot of fun as you would expect you know i really really had a good time i thought the essex coast i mean that is fascinating coastline and it's the the longest after Cornwall, which often I think gets overlooked because of all the inlets. The way you know it's just riddled with marshes and and um, estuaries and and that that whole kind of relationship between water and land in Essex is so uncertain. You know, you can be in a nature in a bird reserve and suddenly notice this sort of sail just drifting along the horizon between fields. Without, and then actually what it is, is this is river just meanders through a whole floodplain. But I don't think you could ever feel that safe on an Essex coastline. You know, there's a sense that, the, that it's all quite precarious, that the, the, the mud is only just above sea level. I mean, that's not, you know, always the case. I know there are some sort of low-lying cliffs as well. But I, I did get really intrigued by the Essex coastline. Yeah, it's interesting you should say it's safe because I have a bit of a prejudice against Whitstable, which I shouldn't. It's a perfectly nice place. But I did go on the beach once with uh, when my kids were small and managed to sink incredibly deep into some really disgusting mud and got so deep that I, you know, they were almost sucked in and we had to pull ourselves out. And then we had to walk back to the station absolutely covered in mud with all these people munching on oysters, staring at us and um, wondering what we've been doing. And it, yeah, so that was Whitstable for that reason. But I suppose I if I was to choose my favourite, it would probably be not English, but Welsh. I'm not sure if I can do that because I know you didn't actually go to Wales for this book, but um, Aberystwyth has always been my favourite just because... Oh, that's a good tip. That's yeah, good tip. It's, it's, it's not a particularly good beach, but it's got amazing rock pools and it's got a castle. And I think ideally a seaside town should have a castle. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So Scarborough Sea has a very prominent castle. So that really ticks that box. I'm, I'm completely with you. Just going back to Whitstable, I mean, your story about the mud, I completely share. You know, I remember my eight-year-old daughter absolutely loving mud, so wading into the mud of the Kent coast and loving it. But Whitstable leaves a really sour taste now because along that Kent coast, you know, it's, it's one of the places where so much sewage has been pumped into the water. And given that I was swimming in most of the resorts I visited, you know, I'm very keen on cold water swimming, you know, I'm not sure I'm going back in the Whitstable Sea. You know, I've done it several times and, and further along that Kent coast, I've done it a lot of times. But now, you know, what we know about the quantities of sewage going into the sea, it's like, mm, that mud is not great. And that is one of the sort of 
themes of the book, really, which is that, you know, we don't look after these places very well. And the, the treatment of sewage being poured onto the beaches is, is a hideous story. It is indeed. Madeline, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you, Ros. So The Seaside, England's Love Affair is published by Granta. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us by searching for Patreon Bunker Podcast and help keep us making them. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Roz Taylor. The producer is Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and our group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kelly Dickinson and artwork by James Paris, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>